0: So I'm walking on this beautiful property. What makes it so beautiful to me is that it's really old. I mean, all property is old when you think about it, but this is a landscape that has pretty much stayed intact for over two centuries. The parcel is about 15 acres, and there's a house situated on the land here. That house was built in the colonial period, and it's beautiful too. The roof line extends deeply beyond the gable ends, and the windows and doors, although replaced over the years, have preserved the look and feel of the original structure. The clapboards are corbelled starting at the seventh course from the bottom. To give you an idea of what corbelling is, it's as if those last few rows of clapboards concave outward and then curve back in where they terminate. This was to keep the rainwater from pooling along the sill and then seeping into the foundation. It's a summer day in New England, and I'm walking sort of slowly. That's because I'm looking for something, but I don't know what it is yet. I haven't lost anything, but someone else did, about 200 years ago. I am metal detecting. Welcome to my podcast. This is Life Underground, and I'm Dan Tebow. Today, I'm going to tell you what my show is about, what I unearthed at this location, the amazing history lesson I learned from it, and why it is relevant to our lives today. My purpose with this podcast is to bring the world of metal detecting to people that wouldn't normally seek it out, mainly because of the stereotype that many people see in their mind's eye when they think of someone with a metal detector. You know, It's that old guy on the beach lumbering in between beachgoers in their swimsuits. When I told my wife, Liz, that I was buying a metal detector, she said that she would pretend she didn't know me when we were at the beach together. This stereotype is, as it happens, totally inaccurate. Beach detectorists are people of many different backgrounds and ages. Finding recently lost jewelry is common, and many a good deed has been done. If it has a traceable inscription on it, the metal detectorist code of ethics compels one to conduct some research and attempt a return to its owner. In this way, numerous people or the descendants in some cases have been unexpectedly reunited with wedding rings or military signets and dog tags among other cherished personal items accepted as lost forever. Still, that's not me. I am not on the beach. I am a relic hunter, someone who prefers old farmlands, town commons, or really old homes built prior to the 1900s, places where our ancestors gathered to work, socialize, and live out their lives. I am not looking for treasure, not in the normal sense. What I seek are everyday items from the past. These may include coins, and by the way, the vast majority of old coins are not worth very much or flat buttons, buckles, spoons, sewing thimbles, or musket balls. These things were extremely important once, and people depended on them to withstand a hard existence. And what I found at this site was remarkable. And if I'm not mistaken, a deeply treasured item. A metal detector is a simple device and without being overly technical, there's a coil of wire at the bottom of the shaft and a pulsing current runs through it at a very high rate of speed, my particular machine at 15,000 times per second. This produces a magnetic field emitted into the ground. When that magnetic field is projected onto a metal object, that object in turn creates and sends back its own eddy current. The electronics in the head of the detector complete a program on that returning signal, and with relative accuracy reports the composition of the metal object, its depth, and its virtual position to the coil center. The machine communicates this information through distinct sounds and a numeric display. So, as I walked along a sloping pasture on this colonial farmland, my machine started talking to me. It was reading in the 90s and making this sweet sound. And that one sound has become Pavlovian to me. My brain literally admits endorphins when I hear it, and a hopeful excitement begins to build. A signal like this can be a silver coin, a brass bell, or a pocket watch. It's the uncertainty that creates the most intrigue. The depth indicator was telling me it sat about 10 to 12 inches beneath the surface. That's about as deep as my machine will go, and most metal objects won't be much deeper. All metals lying on the surface of the soil eventually sink into it, and how far they descend is determined by the simple laws of physics. The variables are the density of the soil and the density of the object. When these two values equal each other, the object finds its sweet spot and will cease to descend any further. It may drop six inches and stay in that position for centuries. Even still, the earth has a movement all its own. It heaves and creeps sideways and from below, ground moraine is continually pushing upwards to the surface as evidenced in the stone walls so typical in a New England landscape. Using a serrated trowel to cut a large circular plug of earth, I popped it out and with the help of a smaller handheld detector called a pinpointer, located a three inch diameter, one inch thick brass disc at the bottom of the hole. After a moment, I realized that it was a compact case. Lightly brushing off some of the dirt uncovered an image of a young woman that was skillfully hand-painted on the lid. Days later, when I showed it to a local historian who was knowledgeable in period clothing, she had established that the woman was dressed in a hoop skirt, waistcoat, full-length billowing sleeves, and a calash bonnet that covered most of her head, save her face. She also identified the date range for these garments as being from 1770 to the mid-1800s. It had been buried in the dark, lost to the world for quite some time. And there's one more fascinating feature to this compact case. It has a secret drawer in it. It took careful cleaning and gentle prying, but I finally got the lid to open. The mirror was pretty much intact, but the powder had solidified, churning as hard as stone. The best part was opening that tiny drawer hidden beneath, because once I freed it from the years of being confined in the dirt, inside was a locket of hair woven around a brass band. Saving a locket of hair of a loved one, especially before an impending separation or after their death, was a tradition begun in the 1600s in Europe, transported to the Americas and it surged in the late 1700s to mid-1800s. Women would cut hair from their men before they traveled the seas or went off to war. They did this as a way to keep them close and in their hearts. As a memento mori for a loved one who had passed away, lockerts were often woven into delicate designs and incorporated into jewelry and even elaborate pieces of artwork to be framed and hung upon the wall. Hair does not decompose, and because of this, many people cherished it as a symbol of eternal life. Families often passed down keepsakes of hair from generation to generation, even after those touched by the person's life were no longer living. I wondered what this locket of hair represented to the woman who owned the compact case. From whom did she cut it? Did her betrothed march off to war? Did he fight in the Revolutionary War or the Civil War? This is what I like most about recovering relics, finding something that has been lost, and then through historical context, imagination, and comparison, finding the meaning of that item. It leads you to research. It brings you to a place of learning. You become a student of history, but not the history you were taught in school. That was full of the names of famous people, our founding fathers, and all those dates and places of the wars that were fought and the great legal decisions and developing economies that are somehow deemed the most important events of our past. No, to uncover the meaning and value of this compact case and its contents requires the study of our cultural history, the unspectacular and largely unwritten account of the human condition that lay behind the legends of the past. It helps you to find out who the rest of our ancestors really were, people who in their struggle for everyday existence were largely disconnected from the monumental and defining events of their day. You can learn about how these people lived from books. And a recent read for me was The Reshaping of Everyday Life, 1790 to 1840 by Jack Larkin. Titles in the genre of cultural history are few in comparison to the standard political and military lexicon, but they do exist and it behooves us to read them. In the colonial period, chimneys sometimes were cleaned by ascending to the roof and dropping live poultry into it. The flapping of the bird's wings loosened the built up pitch where it could be easily swept out at the hearth. Every village or town had a justice of the peace and their responsibilities included fence inspection, keeping records of who was not attending church and arresting the unlawful. A proper fence itself was both a social and legal requirement and that it should be built horse high, pig tight, and bull strong were the prevailing specifications. And when a member of the community broke the law, A justice of the peace often rode horseback or carriage to the offender's farm and formally made a charge, but would not bring them to the stockade. There was simply so much that each individual contributed to the whole that it could severely impact everyone to have them imprisoned. It was a necessity that all worked at their crafts diligently and unremittingly. Debate over the political concerns of the day wasn't in their thoughts as much as tilling the fields, And shoeing an ox was. And once you arrive at this very different historical context, your imagination begins to take over. You can begin to get a sense of what life must have been like for the person who owned the compact. And although we will never really know the complete details of the story, we can relate to the expression of this old lost vestige. As much as things have changed with all the years that have passed, And despite our highly technological society, not much has altered in our hearts or our spirit. Once lost and now found, the compact case and its treasure speaks to us still. Perhaps it's a metaphor for what has always been and always will be, that we desire and need community, that we fear being away from or losing those close to us, and that objects can symbolize and qualify our faith and help us endure in an uncertain world. I recorded this podcast from my home in a beautiful New England town, rich in culture and history. If you liked it, please subscribe, download, rate, and review. The compact case now rests on display at the local historical society. That its loss was mourned is certain. That its resurrection will teach us about life is hoped. Thanks for listening and look for my next episode soon on Life Underground. I'm Dan Thibault. May you bring the lost to the light.